So I'm just trying to let people know, I think, through all of my stories that, yes, the world is in a big, bad, scary place, and that wherever I go, people are people, and people are generally good and willing to help you out if you break down, if you get lost. We're all human beings, and people are generally good. Podcast Junkies 209. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you're new to the show, this is the one where we speak to podcast guests from around the podosphere doing really interesting things in the world of podcasting. In case you missed last week's episode, it was with Eric Conley, host of Unstructured. He's an eternal student of the interview, and we talked a lot about the interview process and how he preps for each guest. This week, I have the opportunity to speak with Scott Gurian, and he was introduced to the show by a recent guest, Stephanie Lahart. Scott is the host of the Far From Home podcast, a show where he documents his travel from far-flung parts of the world, including his race across Mongolia. Scott's a radio veteran, having had stints in various radio stations, and he's worked everywhere from New Jersey to Oklahoma and back to New Jersey again. He covered Superstorm Sandy, which I was actually a part of when I lived in New York. We talk about how he started the Far From Home podcast, about the trials and tribulations of editing footage from his trip to produce his podcast, and all the adventures he had while he was on it. Once again, we are brought to you by the Scarlet 2i2 sound card by the wonderful folks at Focusrite. Shout out to Dan Hewley. Can't say enough good things about this sound card. Super clean preamps, which provide a clean boost to your sound. So I've used it both with the Samson Q2U microphone as well as the Shure SM7B, which is a bit gain hungry and definitely requires a clean sound card. So this is the new 3G third generation sound card, and it's guaranteed to make your audio sound completely professional. Stay tuned till the end of the episode where I reveal this week's retention hashtag, but let's get started on this adventurous conversation with Scott. So Scott Gurian, host of uh, Far From Home, thank you for joining us on Podcast Junkies. Thanks so much for having me on. So we were introduced by Stephanie Lahart, and I'm, I'm wondering if uh, you had known Stephanie prior or she was just a fan of your show. I actually met Stephanie several years ago at the podcast movement conference out in uh, when it was in Anaheim, um, California. And, um, I think, I think we might have been, she, I think I attended a session that she ran and she had some really interesting tips for people who were podcasting. And it was interesting. That was the first. Uh, and since only time I had been to podcast movement and, um, it, I don't know. I, I felt like I didn't totally fit in just because the type of work that I did was very different from many of the other podcasters there. Um, many of them are people who have podcasts to promote their businesses or it, it's more of an interview style, you know, podcast format where it's just, you know, two guys chatting in their garage or whatever. Um, and uh, it, what I do is, is very different. I come kind of from a public radio background. And so um, I don't usually do interviews on my show. It's more kind of a highly edited and produced kind of thing like storytelling. And I'll go out and record all this field tape on some trip I take and, and produce like a, a public radio kind of style story. And I, I just felt like I didn't 
really relate necessarily to I, I picked up little bits from you know the other people but and I, I think Stephanie was maybe just getting started listening to podcasts at that time yeah um, and she hadn't heard that many different sorts of things and so I told her about my show and she was interested and she checked it out and she kind of quickly became a really big fan and it was not like something she had heard before so she, we've I guess kind of kept in touch online um, since then which podcast movement? What city was it in? Do you remember? So that that was in Anaheim, California. Oh, Anaheim, that year. yeah, that yeah. was a couple of years ago. Right. So mm -hmm. I think since then they've actually made a concerted effort to have tracks for people that are coming from public radio. Okay. Um, and there's because there's a lot of things that are the, the similar in terms of the we're all fans of uh, audio, um, of the audio medium, and but there's obviously a lot of things that are different. So can can you just educate the listener a little bit on um, your background? education and, and how you ended up in, in radio? Sure. Um, how far back do you want to go? Um, <laughs> we can okay, we can start at the very beginning. Um, I even way back like in high school, um, I was Perfect. the, uh, I was, I don't know, I was always interested in audio visual kind of stuff. I was like the president of the school TV studio and we would do little skits and, you know, just fun stuff. And I was interested in kind of the technical side of it as well, just how to edit, you know, and put things together. Was it the AV Club? Because it seems to be the AV Club in all. Like, oh no, we actually we called it the TV studio. Um, no, they they didn't have us setting up like projectors for the teachers or boring stuff like that. No, we just got to do fun stuff. Cool. Um, so that was that was we had like a little studio with a three camera setup and everything, nice. old old equipment that was donated from places. But um, but it was fun. Initially, my interest was in television and video, just because there's kind of different opportunities. As much as I love radio and audio, there's certain things you could do creatively when you add the visual medium that are hard to do in audio. Um, I constantly, even now, sometimes with my show, I'm glad, you know, now we have the internet and the websites and I tell people, you know, as much as I'm trying to describe this, you really need to see it and just go to my website and check it out or my Instagram or Facebook yeah, feed. Yeah, that makes sense. So, that, that was my initial love of you know was tv and video and, but then it was just kind of getting my foot in the door as a young kid getting started and i just happened to know someone who worked at a community radio station in new york and so i contacted him and said hey is there any way i could volunteer and this was i was like a freshman in college and he said sure just stop by sometime and i got thrown in kind of totally over my head and just it got to, you know, the age of like 19 or whatever, just do reporting and no one trained me. I was, you know, I listen back now and I cringe like it was really bad. Do you still have access to some of those recordings? I have yeah, on a cassette tape somewhere. I got to dig it out, but it's, I, I really don't even want to listen. It's, um, I, I didn't know what I was doing and I, I just sound really amateurish and even my voicing and everything, just the way I would, you know, very sing songy and didn't know just how to read like a normal human being's talks, you know, like they sound, it sounded like I was performing. Um, well, it's interesting because it's very similar to what podcasters or who just getting started say like they don't like the sound of their voice and it's yeah it's, it's similar to anyone who's recording themselves for the first time i think uh, until you actually hear yourself you're not aware of like your own cadence and and whatever mannerisms ticks you might have and those are certainly tend to manifest themselves over time well that's part of it but i think also because here i was in front of a microphone and i felt like i needed to perform in some way and and you do need to to a certain degree but i was over performing like i i i you know i think the goal should be to just sound like a normal human being talking and not to sound like you're performing or, you know, and then I hear people, you know, sometimes they want to imitate their famous, their favorite, you know, radio person or podcast person. person. And so, um, everyone's trying to sound like, you know, 
Mark Marin from WTF or something, you know, and he, when he <laughs> or does Terry it, Gross. yeah, or Terry Gross, you know, and when they do it, it's authentic to them because that's who they are. But if you're trying to just sound like them, but it's not really you, it comes across as kind of artificial. And so I think, I guess it comes, goes along with like finding your own voice and just like sounding like yourself and not trying to sound like someone else. Totally. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so definitely some cringe worthy things. If I listen back to stuff, even stuff that I did 10 years ago or so, it took a while to, you know, finally be confident in how I sound. So I, yeah, I was just volunteering locally, like a community radio station doing some reporting. And then I went up to school up in Boston, um, got involved with a community radio station up there, up at, um, MIT. There's WMBR they're like community radio they it's a school station but they involve you know members of the community so it was like a weekly talk variety type of show on Friday evenings um, that I volunteered and continued doing some reporting graduated moved back to New Jersey where I'm from and just started doing some freelance reporting for various places it was kind of my way you know to get my foot in the door and then I got hired at the age of I think like 24, I was way too young and way again over my head, um, got totally thrown in to basically as uh, a Pacifica radio to kind of single-handedly produce a daily hour-long national show. <laughs> this is while the, the Iraq war was heating up. And so we had wow. correspondence in Baghdad and Amman, Jordan. So I was like having to book segments and write questions, you know, for the, the host and uh, sometimes I would have to engineer the show live on the air and we were very short staffed and under budgeted and, um, it was total trial by fire. Um, and I got to learn really quickly and eventually we got a little bit more help. So it wasn't just me anymore. So yeah, I got to learn, uh, you know, as far as audio editing and how ISDNs work and all, all that technical stuff. So it was fun. It was definitely, you know, flying by the seat of your pants every day. You'd come in and you're like, how do I find an hour worth of material by the end of the day? And it wasn't always, you know, looking back, a lot of it wasn't very good. You know, it wasn't good content necessarily. It was just like filling time when you have that much time. You know, I've learned over the years that I think the biggest, one of the biggest beginner mistakes is just going, you know, way longer than you need to with something. I think everyone needs a good editor, no matter how long you've been mm. doing this. Yeah, that's um, a good point. You know, but it was, there's something to be said about being thrown into the deep end. Oh right? yeah. Like <laughs> oh, definitely. Definitely. So you, and even after that, when I, I got hired then as a, a news director again, like probably way too young um, at this public radio station in the Oklahoma city area. And again, it was trial by fire because um, I, I'm forgetting how old I would have been at that point, but I was still fairly young in my mid twenties. And I was basically, it was a small station and I was basically, I was the news director, but I was the only reporter also. So some days I would have to put on, you know, a suit and tie and go to record a press conference with the governor of the Capitol. And then the next day I would go, you know, do a story on a rattlesnake festival in Southwest Oklahoma. So a little bit of everything. And you get to be really well-rounded in a situation like that. Um, I always recommend to people if they're looking to like get involved in radio, what should I do? And I always tell them, if you're willing and able to go to a smaller station in a smaller city, because you'll have way more opportunities to get started. You'll, you know, you'll be able to experiment more, um, much more so than if I try to just start out in New York or LA or Chicago or somewhere, you know? Yeah. I have a friend who, um, growing up got into, uh, uh, news reporting and it's the same thing. Like in order to, to make a mark for yourself or to, or to get the experience, you've got to go to the smaller markets mm -hmm. and you've got to do the, the stories about, everyday Americana life. <laughs> and I, I wonder if it's interesting for you, because I actually grew up on the East Coast. I grew up in Yonkers, uh, New York, which is just north of uh, Manhattan. 
I'm wondering how it was for you being growing up on the East Coast and then having the ability to see what other parts of this country were like. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't. I feel like I'm a fairly non-judgmental person, and you know, everyone said, "Oh, wasn't it a big culture shock going from New Jersey to Oklahoma?" But I feel like partially, wherever you go, like you find your people, and you, you know, you find. I, I mean, I wasn't in the middle of nowhere. I was, you know, in Norman, which is a college town where the University of Oklahoma is. It's like mm-hmm. half an hour or so south of Oklahoma City. Um, if I wanted to go to Tulsa, that was like a couple hours away. Um, so there, there was stuff going on there, you know, like an art scene, they had an annual film festival. So you meet cool people. And, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, like I said, I feel like I've always been pretty non-judgmental. I, if I might not, you know, agree with someone, you know, politically or socially or culturally, I always try to, you know, put myself in their shoes and think, well, if I had the same formative experiences that they had, maybe I'd feel the way they do, you know. Um, certainly I have my opinions and I feel certain ways, but rather than being so quick, quick to judge, um, I, I think when I first started out in radio, you know, coming from like Pacifica radio in that background, I guess maybe I was more of what might be called an advocacy journalist and I had certain issues I wanted to report about or whatever. And over time, I think my interests have more been about explaining and trying to understand. And instead of trying to hit someone over the head and convince them, you know, of a certain point, just to figure out like, well, how does that work? And if you, you know, have that crazy point of view, well, why, where did that come from? And why, you know, just to learn more about that. I'm just genuinely, genuinely fascinated. Yeah, I think it's an an acquired skill or it's an an interest um, in learning other perspectives. And I think we, a lot of us, uh, a lot of people don't have the ability to disagree without being disagreeable. (laughs) And I think we would be better off, I think, as a country, if everyone just had the ability to just take a deep breath. And even when you hear something that literally flies in the face of everything you believe in, to not take it as as a personal affront and just say, you know, to your point, like, where did this person grow up? Like, what was it about this person's background and life and family that allowed them to develop these set of values that you know that resulted in you know how they how they the lens with which they see the world yeah not that it necessarily excuses you know their offensive point of view but but you could understand it maybe a little bit yeah Yeah. Yeah. after oklahoma where'd you end up at so then i I was there for four and a half years um (laughs) just seems like a long time but um So I, you know, at a certain point, like you can only learn so much from your own mistakes. Like again, it was a small station. Um, I was the news director. I was also the only reporter. Um, and you must have covered a lot of football then. I didn't. Well, it was a public <laughs> radio station, so we didn't. Football's big in Oklahoma. Yeah, I, it was very big. Yes, but our, you know, public radio it doesn't do as much sports. So yeah, if true, we would do true, so, yeah. we like did some stories about behind the scenes at the football game, okay. and like all the people who worked to, you know, to bring bring tens of thousands of people together and the, you know, tickets scalpers outside and the, you know, people cooking the food and, you know, so that was kind of fun, but that's public radio's way of covering sports. Um, So uh, yeah, after four and a half years, I I really needed to uh, move on and not that I had to get out of Oklahoma, but I felt like I did as much as I could do there. And at a certain point, I feel like, as I said before, everyone needs a good editor. And I didn't have a regular editor there. There was like the program director, but he wasn't trained in news. I, I did do, get to do a fair amount of national reporting from there for NPR, for the BBC, for different places, just because someone always 
is looking for a reporter in middle America, yeah. partially as their token voice <laughs> between the coasts, uh, but also because there's always some big news going on in Oklahoma. Yeah. Oftentimes, it was severe weather, um, wildfires, hailstorms, all kinds of things, tornadoes, of course. So I, I certainly had editors when I would file national stories, but but on a regular daily basis, I didn't have an editor, and I felt like I really needed that. Um, and then also at the same time, I had a death in the family, so that you know made me move back to the East Coast as well. So I moved back to New Jersey again and uh, went back to doing some more freelance reporting um, for WNYC, New York and New Jersey Public Radio, which is a, 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 like I guess the biggest public radio station in the country, with most listeners, I believe. Yeah. So then I started. Uh, uh, I, I was doing odds and ends, different types of reporting. And then in 2016, that fall, um, I remember I had a really good relationship with my editor, Nancy Solomon, and she called me one October day, I think it was a Saturday, and she said, hey, there's this big storm coming, you know, and you want to go down the Jersey Shore, that's how we say it, down the shore in New Jersey, and you want to, you know, interview people who are like boarding up their windows or whatever, you know, preparing for the storm. And so, I was like, uh, sure, it sounds interesting. So, I, you know, just got my gear, hopped in my car, drove down to, you know, the New Jersey shore, like Seabright, that area. And uh, then they called me, I filed some stuff for them and they said, well, actually, you know, this is what turned out to be Superstorm Sandy. And they said, could you actually, you know, stay down there for the night? And I was like, um, sure. I don't, you know, I haven't, hadn't planned on it. I need to find a dog walker back home. I need to like, I don't have a change of clothing or whatever, but I'm sure scrambled around all the hotels were booked because everyone who lived right on the coast had yeah. moved inland of course yeah. somehow managed to find a bed and breakfast down in long branch that was like six blocks from the ocean <laughs> um wow. it was open and it was far enough away that i wasn't worried about flooding but there were these big tall trees around it and so i was afraid something would come crashing down overnight on the building um, so I parked in as much of a clearing as I could and was kind of worried all night. And then the power went out. So it was all dark. So they like, she, you know, gave us a discount on the hotel rate and gave us all flashlights. And I ended up being down there for several days in the midst wow. of this crazy storm coming ashore. Um, just driving up and down the coast, speaking to people. And it was one of the most amazing ex reporting experiences I've ever had. And I feel guilty saying that it was, it, but it was really cool to be thrown mm -hmm. in the middle of something like that, where you barely even need to look for a story. You just, I'm just driving around a corner and I see this business owner who, you know, the morning after he's coming out of her, her business for the first time and she's sobbing on the side of the road. And I stopped and like, I've got to be on the air in half an hour and I'm looking for a story. And do you mind, you know, I don't mean to like be a vulture, but can you tell me like what happened and her whole business was flooded and she made like custom t-shirts and mugs and for people with their logos and did she poured all of her money into it and you know she showed me like the water line was several feet off the floor and all her stuff was flooded and time after time you just be driving around and you just walk into a business and and or someone's home and just these crazy stories all around you and I was on the air constantly from NPR, from the show, The Takeaway, from various places. Um, and it was just the, the thrill of it, the kind of adrenaline of being in a situation like that. Um, and I actually forgot to mention before Sandy, I was actually a producer for a few years as well on this uh, national uh, public radio news talk show called The Takeaway. Okay. Um, and so I had a relationship with them. So during the Sandy stuff, then I was doing a fair amount of reporting for them as well. So, um, so then after Sandy, they decided to hire me uh, as they got some grant money from like the Dodge and the Knight Foundation to hire me for like a year long grant funded thing to continue covering like the long term recovery from the storm mm. following like the federal aid money doing like investments 
investigative reporting yeah. uh, for both radio and print as well for this news website um, in New Jersey called New Jersey Spotlight. And so I spent a year doing that. They liked what I was doing. They found some money for a second year. And so I did that for a few years um, and, uh, and then went off and started my podcast, what I'm doing now. Yeah, it was interesting because I was living in Manhattan on the Lower East Side during Sandy. So I vividly remember exactly what happened. Uh, the The water level on Avenue C was up to mm. like the windows of cars. So wow. like it was yeah. bizarre to stare outside and see Avenue C like look like a river. <laughs> yeah, and all your power and, what below Fourteenth Street I think went out. Was it? Yeah, uh, no, it was below fifty. Oh really? Either seventy wow. eighth or fifty seventh, and oh, I think the transformer was on Fourteenth or something. Yeah. Yeah, all I remember them, yeah. when it went out. I yeah. remember when it went out. It literally you heard. An explosion, wow. and then we looked across to like the Brooklyn side, and it was just like because the Con Ed plant was right there, and you would just we saw the spark, and we're like, you know, there was like, whoa, like what? The just end happened? of the world then, is coming, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you know, Lower East Side, a lot of high rise walk ups, twenty, thirty yeah. floors, and so these people had to you know walk up and down, and I think it was like a whole week. The first day, like no water, and then, but yeah, to your point, like just seeing because because New York City, a lot of businesses have. The, the gates, you know, the, the underneath uh, the storage, underneath like their shops. Mm, and so literally yeah. like everything was flooded. Like yeah. we had below ground parking garages that had, they go two or three levels deep, right? And so wow. all those cars were flooded wow. and it's and it's seawater, right? So yeah. it's it's instantly damaged. It's not just right, fresh water, it's seawater. So it's instantly damaging the, the cars totaled at that point. So all the insurance companies had huge RVs there like, State Farm or whatever it was, uh, I think Geico, where they just they would just have an RV out parked outside. You would just be processing <laughs> claims, mm. and it was bizarre to just. We had a friend who lived on um, in Spanish Harlem, so we biked up there to take a shower, and coming back like just riding your bicycle down. I think it was Fifth Avenue, like, and you look left and right, and all the streets are blacked out completely. Mm. Um, so it was interesting, and then obviously there were stories in Jersey. You would see the path train flood, got flooded. Oh yeah, and, I remember that. So yeah, I mean, what did you learn about like? Was it the first time that you had had conversations with people who had gone through something pretty traumatic uh, in their lives? Maybe um, it was certainly the first time I had spoken to people who had had something just happen. Like I, I yeah, think yeah. I, I had spoken to people like after September 11th, I had done a yeah. whole documentary on that. I was there as well. Yeah. 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 So I, I guess that is what, but that was more like talking about their family members or friends who died. Like this is like people themselves who not mm. to downplay that, but themselves who went through this experience of being flooded and having, it, it, it's just a very different type of experience and on such a mass level, you know, and yeah, it, it was just amazing. Did you change or did you learn anything about how to approach a, a person who's who has just immediately gone through that sort of trauma or even in, in the conversations you had post on 11? Because I know a lot of folks who are listening have their own podcasts, like to do interviews, and some of them, I would imagine, would have guests on that are covering a sensitive topic or something they want to address that happened to the specific guest. And we're always nervous about what to say, how to say it, and, and whether we're going to be offending people or, or whether how much we want to push because the the journalist inside of us or, or the reporter or the podcast host wants to get the, 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 the good part of the story and the emotional part, but we don't want to, I guess we don't want to feel like we're doing it at the expense of our guest or, or whoever it is we're speaking to. Yeah, I think the key is just to be 
a human being more than a reporter just yeah. to be sensitive to you know to tread lightly you know i i try to I, I mean it helps if you can spend time with people beforehand so you're not just swooping in and and like with the whole september 11th thing i basically i i spent a week covering the, this walk of like uh september 11th uh, families and friends who were like walking for peace from the Pentagon up to New York. And so I spent several mm. days like following along with them. And so over time, you kind of build people's trust. They feel more comfortable around you. They could, you know, see your motivations and, you know, they yeah, see that I'm not just parachuting in to grab a sound bite, you know. So that helps with people's comfort level. And then when I would sit with them one on one and get them to open up, you know, and just try to be very sensitive to you know I, you know if there's certain things they're really not comfortable talking about i don't push it you know i say that's fine if they need to stop a moment you know if, if you're breaking down or whatever you know maybe lower the microphone a little bit um yeah. sometimes i would never normally recommend this but sometimes you know my clunky headphones might scare people and you know i might take them off or you know um in, in certain circumstances like that you need to make accommodations sometimes yeah, yes, to your point, just just treat, look at that person as if you're speaking to your, your grandmother or something like that. You yeah. Know, just kind of be considerate about that. So just thinking about the timeline, because you said as you were wrapping up um, your assignment at WNYC, mm -hmm. you started looking into the podcast. When did podcasts first show up on your radar? Pretty early. Um, I would need to look back and see. I still have some early files I downloaded on my desktop computer, but it, it was very early before podcasting was really its own thing. Like originally yeah, yeah. it was just radio shows that, you know, would release their episodes like on the internet, you could download them or especially for people who lived outside of the area. And at this point, this is before iPhones or anything. So you'd have like a portable MP3 player and you'd have to connect it to the computer and sync it up and transfer <laughs> the files. It was so clunky back that, then. Yeah. So I didn't listen regularly because it was just a pain in the ass to do all that. So yeah, what year would that have been? It would have been after I... I don't even know. So I, yeah, I remember some early stuff I listened to Then I was just telling someone the other day. Um, one of the early programs i remember listening to something produced out of kcrw out in santa monica they had this weekly it was a weekly like i think it was weekly like a radio segment um it was called the final curtain mm. um and i caught it just at the very end unfortunately it like ended a few weeks after i started listening but it was really cool it was like a radio obituary show and so each time they would like do little profiles of several people who had died that week not not people you'd ever heard of but people who maybe played some really interesting or important role behind the scenes or something's name Named after them or you know they were the founder of some quirky technology that we use every day just really fascinating people mm, who it's kind of a shame you never heard or knew anything about them until they died yeah, yeah. but it was it was a really fun show and unfortunately that ended shortly thereafter and then i think i i I stopped listening to podcasts for a long time. And then just, I guess, the last few years, I started getting back into them more and more. And now, you know, it's so hard to keep up now. Like, there's um, there's a bunch that I listen to regularly in several yeah. da daily, you know, programs from like the New York Times and the Washington Post. But, you know, I, I went through my queue a few months ago, and there's like 200 shows in there. And most of them I haven't <laughs> heard yet. I've, you know, yeah, yeah. heard about and been wanting to listen to. And there's a lot of these series now, these limited run series that you know come about and it's like 12 episodes or whatever and then it's done 
but there's so much good content now. It's really hard to keep up. And for those of us who are in podcasting, it means there's more competition. You know, they say, what, 700,000 shows, though I know most of them are produced regularly, but still. Yeah. I was just able to binge um, The Habitat, which is uh, Gimlet's news. Yeah. Yeah, it was about that. I haven't haven't heard it, but I know of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I started this show out of the, because I was a fan of so many shows and I, it, interestingly enough, the domain Podcast Junkies was available. So just because I had so many shows, but now I produce shows now and, and the irony is that I, I get less and less opportunities to listen to shows. So uh, I do have to listen to a couple at um, the one act, the one and a half X, two X. Sometimes, if it's just like entertainment, yeah. Which I know, which I know, a lot of the uh, <laughs> folks from Radio Cringe at, but it, but the folk, the, the shows that do get produced, and you know, you can tell that there's been time put in for like the music, and right, and, you know, those are the ones where I'm like, okay, I just want to honor what they've put together. But sometimes the entertainment ones, I'm just like, look, like Joe Rogan, I'm not, gonna, I can't listen. If it's just people talking. <laughs> And some yeah, people do people talk talking. really slow too, so I, yeah. I, I get that. I don't I don't yeah. do it myself, but I get it. Yeah. So, yeah. so when did you start thinking about the possibility of, as opposed to just looking for the next radio public radio gig, um, what was it about the the idea of a podcast that that interested you? Well, the first thing was I I always loved reporting internationally, um, and I think my my first big experience was actually when I was like a junior or senior in college and I had some friends who were filmmakers and they were going down to Mexico. This is, it just kind of happened to coincide with my spring break from school. And most people, you know, you hear, oh, they're going on their spring break to Mexico and you think going to a beach in Cancun or something. This was not Cancun. Senior frogs. No, no, this, this was actually, they were following uh, the Zapatista Indians, which was this indigenous rebel tribe. If people remember the old Rage Against the Machine videos, the Mm. people like the balaclavas over their faces. Yeah. And so they were uh, joining with all these other indigenous groups around Mexico doing this giant march for indigenous rights from Chiapas and way southeast Mexico by the Guatemalan border, marching to uh, Mexico City to the Zocalo, the central square, to make demands on the government. And so these filmmakers I knew were like following them and uh, on this like school bus with this group like for like a a week or two. And so, and one of those weeks happened to be over my spring break. So I went down and and totally, you know, I'd never done anything like this before. Mm. I don't think I'd ever tried traveled by myself in a foreign country. (laughs) Um, And it was the coolest thing ever. Like, it was just an amazing experience um, being kind of on my own with this group, but, you know, reporting on my own without any friends or family and following them around in this totally foreign culture with a different language and different foods and customs and everything. And then doing some, like, I was like filing stories from down there. And after that, I was like, oh, wow, I really, I want to do more of this. I want to be like a foreign correspondent or live abroad or something. Um, So that's always kind of been in the back of my mind. Um, And I've done a little bit more international stuff over the years, went to Haiti a few years ago after the earthquake there. And so, yeah, my initial interest was, okay, I want to like continue working in radio, but like do the foreign correspondent thing. And then, of course, podcasts open up more opportunities. I'm not opposed. I, you know, I'd certainly consider doing more radio and that, you know, pays the bills and, you know, do file stores for different places. But after I was doing the whole Sandy reporting, um, I really want to do more international stuff. 
and was starting to think about just doing radio reporting abroad. And then, um, so my brother and I take a big trip usually every, over every like Christmas and New Year's over the holidays. We don't have a lot of, you know, family, close family in the area. We figure we might as well go somewhere, do something interesting instead of just sitting home and cooking dinner for ourselves. So we went like to Thailand and Cambodia one year. Um, we went to Ecuador and the Galapagos Islands. And one year we were in Cuba. Um, and this would have been in 20. Uh, 15, 14 or 15. Um, and we were in this uh, like tour group. We, we don't usually do tour groups, but in Cuba, we decided we would. And mm-hmm. we met this woman, Rosie, who was there with her husband, Alan. And uh, Rosie's British, but she now lives in Western Australia. And um, we, our tour group had some issues. Our tour guide kind of got drunk and abandoned our group one evening. And so we all kind of bonded, as you can imagine. And we kept in touch afterwards on Facebook and everything. We still have a Facebook group we, you know, we, we kept, uh, started and kept in touch with. And Rosie contacted my brother and me um, a, a few months later. And Rosie's, you know, middle-aged in her 50s, but she's very adventurous. She's traveled quite a, a fair amount for business and everything. And she said, hey, I'm planning this big crazy trip with my best friend Jane we're gonna take part in this charity event called the Mongol rally and we're gonna get a little tiny car and we're gonna drive all the way from the UK to Mongolia and would you and your brother like to join us and it just sounded like an amazing experience I had known Rosie was gonna do this trip she had mentioned it when we were in Cuba but until she like planted the idea in my mind like oh do you want to come with us it's like suddenly it was like whoa like i didn't yeah, yeah. i don't know why i hadn't considered that but it just sounds amazing and so like how could you turn something like that down it was and it was months and months of planning a trip like that as you could imagine um and it was pretty early on that i realized hey i should do a podcast about this not just to document the trip itself, but just all the preparations that go into a trip like this, getting the visas and vaccinations, planning the route. We did a whole episode on what kind of car do you buy to drive to Mongolia, and then documenting the trip itself. Um, I ended up, the trip took us uh, about seven weeks, 52 days. Um, We went through uh, 18 countries and it, 11,000 miles. And then I decided once we got to the end, I actually decided to drive all the way back on my own to uh, or yeah. a friend, another friend flew out and met me. Um, just to continue gathering more stories for my podcast. Yeah. So I ended up recording like, I think it was like 65 hours of tape wow. from this whole trip wow. and just, all the just fascinating, crazy stories uh, that I then for my first season documenting the journey there to Mongolia, I released like, 24 half hour episodes um just really cool stuff being able to capture you know stories from these places that the average westerner never goes to whoever who goes to tajikistan who goes to iran as an american like people are afraid of it but it ended up being the friendliest people i've ever met in all my travels you know there were some challenges recording at times because you know it's unlike any recording environment i've ever been in so i couldn't bring all my good fancy gear my shotgun microphone and all you know my big Moran's probably board. a good thing you probably would have gotten damaged well, that, <laughs> well or gotten confiscated at, you know we're that's going across true, yeah. these land borders or searching through our cars yeah, and i don't want to flag myself as a journalist in iran or yeah. turkmenistan or somewhere so i had to be very discreet i you know just just brought a little handheld recorder. Sometimes even that was too much. I just had to even just record on my iPhone sometimes to get like interactions with border guards or mm-hmm. when we got pulled over by these cops, you know, in Tajikistan, they're trying to make us pay a bribe and we gave them some vodka. Like I got all this on tape, you know, it's just Good. amazing. Um, so uh, yeah, it was really cool to be able to tell those stories for people who are like armchair adventurists back home that, you know, we get to live vicariously through the audio. I think that's the power of good audio that it takes you places. 
Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, I, I caught some of the earlier episodes and there was one where you had to be cognizant of the fact that you were entering Muslim countries that, you know, they, whether they don't eat pork yeah. and there's no alcohol allowed. So Going like, into Iran. You, yeah, all yeah, these yeah. things in our car, like, oh, we, we got to ditch them at the border. We can't bring these things with us. They'll search through our car. You'll get in trouble. Yeah. And some of the other, um, your other uh, race attendees, I think, had, had gotten one of the sponsors was like a, a jer- beef jerky company. Yeah, or right, right. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> so like, challenges you never imagined. <laughs> right. And then you had to, it was interesting because you, you're thinking about the best car for that sort of adventure. And so there was a whole episode or two about like how you're researching it. And I think the, um, the, the, the model that you ended up with is, it's called a Nissan. It's a Nissan, a Nissan, Nissan Micra. It's a Nissan little tiny. Little tiny car, like 1.2 liters, which is it's made for like you know an old lady driving around town or something doing her getting her groceries. Definitely not for driving you know a quarter of the way around the earth. So was there a time when you? I know there were a couple of moments that you mentioned where you were worried about what was happening, the revolts that were happening in Turkey at the time, and the, I know there was a, a couple episodes where you were concerned about whether that was going to be an issue. Mm-hmm. And it actually turned out to not be, and I think in one of them you were actually surprised at how metropolitan Turkey was and, and how safe it felt compared mm-hmm. to what you, you thought it would have been. Was there a time when you actually felt, or, or what was the time when you felt that you were most in danger? I don't think I ever really felt in danger. Yeah, as you mentioned, it was just bad timing in the, in the summer of 2016 where, yeah, we ended up at the border to enter Turkey six days after the attempted coup. Um, so we were really worried and scrambling at the last minute and should we yeah. go a different way? Is it safe? But that, that ended up being totally fine. You never would have known anything had happened there. And people were so excited to like the hotel operators, restaurant owners, like, cause all the other tourists have been scared away. So they were thrilled to see us. Um, so Turkey ended up being totally fine. Uh, Iran ended up being totally fine. Like I said, friendliest people I've ever met in all my travels, just a sense of Persian hospitality. Mm-hmm. You know, these total strangers meet you, start talking within five minutes. Uh, they, they had never met Americans before and they were so excited to see us. They had so many questions yeah. for us. They wanted to practice their English. And within five minutes, they're inviting you to their home, come for tea, come for dinner, meet their families. You know, it's awesome. It's just amazing. Um, destroying every. There was, there was the one guy who had been practicing English his whole life and he had never met an American. And he yeah, was like, he couldn't believe we were American. He's like, show me your passports. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He just couldn't believe like Americans in Iran. Like, is that even possible? The same thing Americans would think of, you know, can you go to Iran? So, yeah, Iran was fine. Even, even Tajikistan, you know, we were driving on the Pamir Highway, which is supposedly one of like the worst roads in the world. And like several days we spent driving along the stretch, which was right across the river from Afghanistan, like within shouting distance. To some, it was mostly, most of the Afghan side was just sheer cliff faces. So we weren't that worried. And, and in between us and them, it was like these class five rapids in this river. So it was like, okay, I think we're safe, but I guess someone could shoot across the river or something if they wanted to, but you know, but no, that en- ended up being totally fine as well. Um, no issues there. As far as, I wouldn't say in danger, but the, the place I felt the most uncomfortable, probably for all of us, was, was most likely Turkmenistan, mm. which is after North Korea is like the most authoritarian country in the world. It's a very odd place. It's very hard to even get a visa to go there. And, and you know, even so, they, they only give you like a, a, I forget whether it was a three-day or a five-day transit visa. So, you basically have to enter at one side, drive across in a straight line and exit at the other side. 
I hear in recent years since we went, they've even started putting like GPS trackers in the cars to make sure you don't wander around. Wow. Yeah. And it's just, we constantly felt like we were being watched or followed somehow. We we come across the border from Iran and drive through, it almost felt like we were going through a drive-through safari or something. There's nature, like through these mountains with like, it's, I guess it's technically a military base. And they said, don't stop and don't take pictures. But it was just so gorgeous. Like, we, c- we couldn't help ourselves. And we've seen these, these packs of, like, gazelles or whatever they were, like, running wow. across. It was just amazing. And then we descend from the mountains from this, like, nature reserve military base into the city, Ashgabat, which is the capital of Turkmenistan, which has, I, I forget what the population is, but it's a decent-sized city. And the streets are totally empty. And we're like, what the hell? Like, this is so weird. It's like the city, like they had just cut the ribbon and it had just opened for business or something. And we like come to this corner and there's this like police guy there with like these like flashlights or, or like batons or whatever, almost like an air traffic, and you know, a guy in the runway with these light, light up things. And he like motions to us to pull over to the side. And we're like, we didn't, did we do anything wrong? Wait, he doesn't speak any English. We don't speak any Turkmen or Russian or whatever. So we can't communicate with him, but he just holds us there a few minutes and he has a little earpiece and he's like, listening to someone talking oh, yeah, remember that. Yeah. yeah and then all of a sudden like traffic starts coming from other directions and it felt like we were in the truman show or something like it's like the actor is walking on stage late for the performance like, it was like so cue, creepy. Cue the traffic it was so creepy um, and one of the other groups for the Mongo, from the Mongo Rally actually found what appeared to be like a listening device in their hotel room chandelier like it, it was just so creepy it was a very strange place yeah, I think what a lot of people don't know about uh, Iran specifically, I, I remember seeing stories about like in the 70s, it was like a, like a metropolitan city and there was like yeah. discotheques and people going out and listening and dancing to music and Afghanistan um, as well, apparently. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 How much did the trip help you like increase your knowledge of like the, just the geography of oh, that whole region? Definitely. I mean, before I went, I, I think like most people like this whole part of central asia was a like a black hole in my geographic knowledge um all, all the stands you know i had no idea what country was next to which and it's still hard to figure out because they all kind of the borders like snake together and it's it's really confusing at certain places and then there's all these enclaves and exclaves and literally like disputed territories that you know when you're driving and you know planning out your route you're like okay there's like one country but then there's like a little island of another country in the middle of it that you got to go around because i don't want to have to go through two more border crossings which will take another few hours um so it's it's very confusing um but it's, it's a fascinating part of the world i mean it's very these are all former soviet republics so a lot of them um in addition to their own languages they speak russian as well so it probably would have helped to have spoken some russian which we don't speak any but um it was it was a really interesting part of the world the, the old silk road yeah Given the number of stands you went to, that colored the choice, your choice in the name of your team, right? Yes, we uh, we called our team Team Don't Understand. <laughs> that was a little pun there. So yeah, that's fun. So talk to me a little bit about now. With how do you approach sixty-five hours of a tape, and oh, like, how, yeah. do you, how do you like then decide like to put that in, in a way that's keeps it entertaining and not overwhelming for you and you know how much time does that take for you to do that once you get home it was definitely daunting um and then confusing because i had audio recorded in several different places i had you know two different you know handhelds 
uh, Tascam recorders, so the, the numbering system, the files was different on each of them. And then I was recording some stuff on my iPhone, um, and so that was a whole day. And then I had to put them chronologically in order to f- try to remember what went where. Um, I tried to take really good notes on the trip. Um, that was yeah. something I learned when I, I studied radio documentary years ago, and mm. they said take really good field notes, like at your, you know, jot down your initial impressions of a place, because once you have those initial impressions, they'll fade and you'll never have mm. them again. That's a good point. Um, yeah. So it was a combination of just in my iPhone and the notes app, like writing down, you know, everything, just like verbal diarrhea, just get, getting it all down, like, you know, um, everything or at the end of a long day, all this crazy stuff happened. And just, you know, while it's still in your mind before you forget that, like, sometimes we would go through all these crazy experiences and you're like, wow, all that happened in the last 24 hours. Like, it's just amazing. Uh, we keep breaking down or getting rescued or towed to the next town. It's just crazy. And um, so, so it was a combination of, yeah, type putting it all on my phone, but sometimes I would just narrate and, you know, and record mm-hmm. myself saying, hey, this is where we are. This is what just happened. Yeah. Um, which sometimes is... Is it similar to what, like, you would do in a movie? You'd have, like, the marker. It'd be like... You know, scene two, take two. Sometimes, stamp. Yeah. yeah. Here now, this is sound of outside in the market. Here's a minute of just the sound of the market to mix under me when I'm editing. You know, um, and sometimes that stuff I record is just for, for my own purposes when I'm editing to like you know. Other times it's like what they call a stand-up, like it's something I plan on using. Like I'm, you know, here I am at the corner of whatever, and like mm. all around me this is happening, and you know, just to set a scene and like put yeah, someone yeah. in a place. Um, it's so, something that you're always conscious of, right? The fact that you are the eyes oh, yeah. of the listener, right? Yes. Yeah. Because people can't see where you are and you, you need to do that for them. So I try to be as visual as possible. Um, yeah. they, they talk about radio or podcasting being a visual medium, which sounds weird. But it, in some ways, it really is. It's it's way more intimate than television yeah. or video where you're just kind of giving someone the images and it's kind of like cheating. Like, you know, and yeah. again, there's something to be said for that. But when you're just a describing things and people see them in their mind like it's very personal like and yeah. it might not be exactly accurate because everyone's going to have their own image but it's it's their own thoughts and their own and that's the beauty of it the, i've heard it described as a theater of the mind yes and in, and in the same way you read a book and you sort of like visualize what the story is like and what the characters look like in your own mind in the same way with these types of stories as mm-hmm. you're hearing it described if you had people paint or color or if they could what your stories were you know you, you asked five different people they'd probably paint or draw five different things <laughs> yeah based yeah on, based on what they heard from you right right and i and i try to you know i still try to be as uh vivid as i can in my descriptions um and there there have been times where i've described things and then i put a picture online and someone was like oh that's exactly the way i imagined it you know but that, that doesn't yeah. always happen so, uh, yeah, so I, uh, basically back to your question. So I had all this audio and just tried to at least initially put it kind of chronological and, you know, look back at my notes, look back at kind of the map of our route to kind of just get everything straight. Cause a lot of this I wasn't producing till months after I returned. So just trying to remember it all. And I, I think I have a fairly good memory, but I still sometimes mm-hmm. needed some of this stuff to jog my memory. I had, we, you know, we took tons of photographs. My brother's a professional photographer, but then I took, you know, we also took photos with our iPhones and sometimes, you know, the photo, fo- the f- 
photos would just, I mean, it would help, you know, me describe things just by looking at the photo, but it would also help me remember where did, you know, that event take place. And I could look at the geotags from, you know, where the images were taken on my phone. I have this great little program on my computer where it just shows me exactly where the photo was taken and even which direction I was pointing the the phone. It's really cool. It's super cool. So the the most obscure things, my brother was like, where did that happen again? And I could just pull up the photo and I see exactly where it was. Um, So that was neat. So, yeah, just sorting through it all. Um, and it wasn't always chronological. Like, there were times where I'd move things a little bit out of the chron- uh, chronology just because the story worked better um, a certain way. But then, you know, so after my first um, few episodes of that first season telling, you know, how the whole trip came about and all the preparations, then it was more or less following us chronologically through the different mm-hmm. countries on the trip. And, some countries like Iran. I did two episodes from Iran because it was a really fascinating place. There was a lot that went on. Other places like Kyrgyzstan, we just kind of breezed through. We uh, we got horribly lost one day and like follow made the mistake of following Google Maps instead of our paper maps and went on this mm. like twelve hour detour out of the way. Um, and then we were way too far wow. before we realized it. But so there but there wasn't that much that happened in Kyrgyzstan. Basically, we got lost and then we went out. So that what there's not even a full episode of Kyrgyzstan. So it, it all depended on what was you know the most interesting stories did you have in mind that you wanted to publish a set number of episodes i had no idea and i didn't i didn't think it would be this many at all um i i listened back to my my initial trailer for the season which uh at that point i forget i think i said oh and listen to the, the next seven or eight episodes or so i forget what it was i had to go back and change it recently because oh, now funny. that the season's done it's like no it's like two dozen yeah. so it just I, I had i had no idea at all and and i tried to still be people say two dozen episodes that's a lot i, I mean i still tried to be a disciplined editor of myself and mm. pretty much everything i released you know even though i don't have a like a proper editor now i tried to let some other people listen to it both my brother because yeah. he was on the trip and there was sometimes he would say oh but that uh, other thing happened. Maybe you should explain that. And even just my housemates, just to, to get a second or third set of ears before I release anything. And oftentimes, you know, even though I've been doing audio and radio, you know, for so many years, there are little things they point out that I didn't even notice. It should be obvious, but you get kind of mm. in this tunnel vision. You're so attached to your audio, or yeah. you know, it's uh, things are obvious to you, but to someone else hearing something for the first time and they ask you know, well, what about that? And like, oh, duh, like, how, how did I not mention that? You know, so it, again, you know, I think editing is super important. And um, I, even though it sounds like a lot, of, you know, 24 half hour episodes, 12 hours of audio from this trip, I, I tried to make every moment count, you know. What was the response when you started releasing it? It was slow at first, because it's taken a while for the podcast to really kind of catch on. And, you know, at the beginning, it was just a few hundred of, you know, family and friends, you know, people I knew Mm -hmm. or other people who went on the Mongol rally who, you know, I tell them, listen, and, you know, either remember your experiences or you're planning on doing this event next year, and maybe you could get some tips or whatever, you know, get some insight into what the journey is like. So, it's taken a while for it to finally, you know, start to grow and get more of an audience. And, 
Um, and also I was, you know, releasing episodes kind of sporadically, not on a regular basis. Mm. And, and now I'm trying to, you know, now I'm doing it on a more regular basis now that I'm on my second season. But, um, I'm glad now that that whole first season is out there. So there's a lot of people now who are discovering my show for the first time who are going back and binging, you know, yeah. to the whole first season. And they're really excited about it just to follow my whole journey. Uh, and people who've told me just like over the course of a weekend or whatever, I listened to all 12 hours of your first season. It, it just warms my heart like I, I love hearing that kind of thing because that's that's why i made it every podcaster loves to, to hear that someone appreciates their content their content so much that they actually yeah. go back and listen to like past episodes so yeah. anytime someone has said that to me with some of my content that i've gone back and listened to all your episodes i'm like well i'm grateful that you have that much time yeah, right <laughs> and uh, hopefully you learned something so did you always have in mind that you were uh, going to be doing a uh, second season um I think as time went on, I don't know that, that I did necessarily from the very beginning, but as time went on, um, I thought, okay, so what comes after this? Like once, you know, I finished telling this journey, um, I want to continue doing more international reporting and yeah. yes, I'm, I'm always constantly looking for like other radio shows or other places to have people pieces on just to get more exposure and also to you know pay the bills um but but having my own podcast gives me a regular platform um as well to to you know a place to have these stories run um and to build an audience and i i really i just want to keep traveling and keep you know creating mm -hmm. stories from far-flung places of the world so um i'm just excited of the opportunities i have such a long list of story ideas and places i want to <laughs> go that's good you know what have you learned about the world of podcasting that's different than the world of radio that you had grown up in and, and had spent the majority of your career in? It's a lot different. Um, yeah. It's it like producing a story for a podcast is way different than producing a story for the radio. I was actually, my, my old boss, my old editor called me back a few years ago to do a story for... Uh, I guess it was the five-year anniversary of Superstorm Sandy because that had been my beat and they called me back and said, hey, could you do a follow-up story? Yeah. And I hadn't done a radio story in quite a while. And I was amazed by, you know, because a, a typical radio story, I don't know, four minutes, five minutes, six, mm -hmm. something like that. And that's and that's public radio. That's a long time. You talk about commercial radio, you're down like 45 seconds or something, you yeah. know. But even in public radio, which, you know, gives people more space to breathe and, you know, give, gives you a little bit more time to tell a fuller story. Even so, I had like some clips of tape of people I interviewed and, and, uh, I don't know, like a 30 second clip of tape. And my editor's like, that's way too long. Like that, that's oh, not, wow. you know, you need to get it down to 20 seconds. Like it's people don't have the attention span or that, you know, just the pacing of a yeah. radio story. It's constantly like accent tracks, like, you know, they, they call it actualities and, and my voice tracks, like constantly mm -hmm. going back and forth. And, um, it's, it's, you need to be really disciplined and just the pacing of it. Like it's really hard. Yeah. And I really like how with my podcast, I can, you know, again, I don't want to make things boring. I still want to make them interesting. Yeah. I don't want to make every bit of take count, but I have some more space to kind of go on. If someone's really an interesting talker to let them go on a, a minute or a couple minutes, yeah. whatever, to, you know, and, and then they don't score it, put some music and everything kind of a this American life sort of style, you know, um, it just gives me a lot more opportunities and it's, it's way more flexible and way more ways to be creative than a typical radio story yeah, it's interesting and i've heard uh joe rogan describe it as like you're the station owner you're the 
you're the marketing manager, you're the producer, you're the editor. I mean, and, and in some ways, you like you basically have all the roles and you can control it. There's no one really censoring you in terms of like the duration of what you can can't put out. So I've always found that fascinating. But your listeners will let you know if yeah, it's if will. it's boring, if it's, <laughs> it's like yeah. The, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not necessarily immediately accountable to someone, but in the end, you are, and so you learn over time to kind of be a good editor of yourself. But but again, I I think if you could find other people around you whose opinion you trust to also help kind of serve that editorial role, that helps as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I appreciate that uh, you've taken the time to put this series together. I'm, I'm really glad that I found it. And, and it's helpful for the listener as well, because there's a lot of folks starting podcasting who don't have the radio background. So I think all the experience that you bring and even the things we talked about, and even just by listening to your show and to your series, I think they'll learn a lot about what it takes to produce content. And um, so I appreciate and thank you for <laughs> introducing that. You know, I know there's a lot of podcasts out there, but there's always nice to hear quality shows being recorded by people who understand and respect the medium. Yeah, I thank you so much. Those are, I feel like, the best podcasts, or at least my favorite ones, are people who kind of have a radio background, who know how to really tell a story, get good yeah. audio, because I, I think good audio is important. Like, you can yeah. have the most interesting content in the world, but if it's recorded poorly, like, it, yeah. I just can't listen. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, the, the attention span is so short nowadays. I tell people, like, you know, within the first 30 seconds of hearing a podcast, you'll know, like, are they taking it seriously or not? Um, so, I think it's crucial to, to record that quality. Yeah. Um, a couple of questions as we wrap up that uh, I ask every guest. What's uh, something you've changed your mind about recently? Something I've changed my mind about. I, I think that I used to feel like I could travel anywhere in the world and just find interesting stories and meet fascinating people. And I still do feel like that's possible, but it's definitely way harder in certain parts of the world than others. Mm. And I wasn't uh, initially aware of that. After we finished this whole trip with the Mongol rally, I decided to, you know, to drive all the way back to the UK to get more stories. And so a friend flew out to meet me and we figured, okay, we drove the Southern route. Let's go back the Northern way, just across all of Russia and Siberia. And I don't know what I was expecting. I guess I'm, I'm too optimistic, but I was like, Oh, you know, Russia is not the most interesting place in the world in, in my experience. Um, there are pockets of interesting places. Like we, we went down the Tuva and I took Tuvan throat singing lessons. And oh, that, wow. that was, so I did a whole episode on that in my second season. And that was really cool because it's, it's not what you think of as Russian, like their, their, their own language, their own culture. The Tuvans yeah. are almost like Mongolian okay. and they have their own instruments and music. That, so that was really cool. But most of like, Russia, which just, I don't know, the people at least initially struck me as not so friendly, not so curious. And people have told me since that, you know, Russians, once they get a chance to know you, they'll be really friendly and everything. But it's just that initial kind of yeah. front that, you know, and, and uh, not speaking the language and, and knowing the culture certainly didn't help either. But then you go to other places like in, like in Iran, like in Cuba, where people are just coming up to you on the street. And they're so curious and they want to engage in conversation. And it's so much easier to find stories in a place like mm. that. So, um, yeah, I've, I've realized that, yeah, definitely some places are in the world are harder than others. And, and also that, you know, to really get the kind of stories that I'm looking for, even in the best case scenarios, I can't just parachute in. Like, I really need to spend time in a place yeah. like, like a week isn't enough like ideally mm. two to three weeks to really yeah, kind of sense. get to know a place well. 
That's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. And then lastly, what's the most misunderstood thing about you? The most misunderstood thing about me? I think some people, when I tell them about my show and what I'm trying to do, it they might not understand, like... And there's several different elements I'm working in my head of kind of what I'm trying to do with with my podcast. And some of it is, you know, just uh, that the world is, people say it's a small world, but the world is actually really, there's a giant parts of the world that most people never go and billions of stories they've never heard. So that's part of it. But also that um, I just, I'm always looking for ways to kind of venture a little bit outside of my comfort zone and, you know, tell these have these experiences and you know so i i mean i'm the the one creating a show so it's like through my eyes and through but on the other hand i think people might be confused and they think oh it's just all about scott's wacky adventures or something you know and i don't want to make it that either i mean yeah there's a little bit of an element of that the kind of gonzo journalism whatever and i've done some crazy i mean i drove to mongolia and then people were like well how are you ever going to top that and so then i did an episode i went to chernobyl and then people were like how are you going to top that and then i went to peru and um i went to this ayahuasca ceremony where people drink oh, yeah, this, like that. hallucinogenic that's, that's the, potion yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah there are definitely things i do kind of in the name of journalism that i would never do in my ordinary life but i i think the goal isn't to, it's not like, you know, a radio version of the TV show Jackass, where I'm just trying to do stupid shit to, you know, that's not what my aim is. Um, It's more just to kind of be able to have these experiences, like go to these places to get to to describe them to other people. Um, And I think there's something special about experiencing something for the first time, or going outside of my comfort zone, doing something I normally wouldn't do. There's something very authentic about it, like in, in the telling of the story. Because I, the, I think the irony is that even though I have like a travel adventure show, in some ways, I'm not that adventurous of a person. You know, I, in the, at least in the past, I would, I like to love traveling, experiencing different cultures, but I would, you know, methodically like plan out everything ahead of time. And I would know my route and I would know the restaurants I would go to and I would know all of that. And so I feel like when I'm traveling now, I'm constantly trying to strike a balance between, yes, I feel like some of that I want to do because there's always this, you know, fear of missing out. Like, you know, you go to this amazing place and if you don't do any research, get any guidebooks or anything, and then you get all the way home and then you realize, oh, I could have just driven five miles down the road and I would have seen that amazing thing, you know. So, I want to kind of have the broad kind of outline ahead of time and kind of know what to expect. But I also don't think I should plan out every day and every hour. You know, I want to leave some time to just explore and, you know, do things that I've never done before and go to places I've never been before um, to, again, not to kind of have you know scott's wacky adventures and make the show all about me but more just kind of to to both experience things for the first time myself but then also expose other people to these experiences for the first time and and have them hear my wonder and my excitement well i think that's definitely what you've done with the podcast and you've probably helped people live a bit vicariously through you as well people who may not have the the courage or the sense of adventure to actually try something like this on their own so (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, that that's my goal. I mean, to to expose people to these things and to change their perceptions, to let people know that the world isn't necessarily a big, bad, scary yeah. place. That wherever you go, you know, you you hear stereotypes of these people in this country or this part of the world are dangerous or whatever, you know. 
But then when you actually go there, time after time, I found that things are not at all the mm-hmm. way you you would perceive that they would be when once like your feet are actually on the ground. Um, it's oftentimes very different than you thought it would be from thousands of miles away on the other side of the planet. So I'm just trying to let people know, I think, through all of my stories that, yes, the world is in a big, bad, scary place and that wherever I go, people are people and people are generally good and willing to help you out if you break down, if you get lost. We're all human beings and people are generally good. Yeah, and I think in this day and age, that's definitely a message that resonates and something we need to hear more of. So I appreciate you coming on the, the podcast, sharing your story and, and appreciate the work you've put into this. And I think uh, new listeners are going to get really, really enjoy it. So I encourage folks to subscribe to the, to the podcast. Cool. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. What's the best place for folks to listen to the show and to engage with you online? So the show again is called Far From Home. Um, they could find it wherever they find podcasts, any of the podcast apps or Spotify. It's now on Pandora, any of those places. And they could check out my website, farfromhomepodcast.org, look up the show on Instagram or uh, Facebook, or they could follow uh, me personally, Scott Gurian, on Twitter. Well, thanks again for your time, Scott. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So thanks to Scott for coming on the show and sharing his journey, his fantastic trip to Mongolia in this race that just sounds like it was an incredible, incredible adventure. And it's fun to hear things that some of us may never get to experience, like traveling through all those different countries. So I'm appreciative to Stephanie Lahart for making the connection and for Scott uh, for sharing his story. That was fantastic. This episode is also brought to you by Fullcast, fullcast fullcast.co, our production company for full-service, done-for-you podcast production. We handle everything from the launch to the production and the marketing of your show. Reach out at fullcast.co for a free consult. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. Don't forget to check out the wonderful line of sound cards by the Focusrite team, specifically the Scarlet 2i2. Tune in next week for my conversation with Amira Valiani. She's the CEO and co-founder of Glow.fm. It's a Patreon alternative that I've been digging into a lot over the past few weeks and months. She's really done something very fascinating with the tech to make it really easy for you to solicit support for your podcast and keeping the user experience very friendly. You never have to leave the app and you can also have private content as well using her service. It's a really interesting discussion. I can't wait for you to hear that. If you made it this far, no doubt you're listening for the retention hashtag. Let's go with far from Scott and you can tag myself at podcast underscore junkies and Scott at Scott Gurian, S-C-O-T-T-G-U-R-I-N. Thanks for all you do to support the show. And my ask for this week is if you haven't already, head on over to podchaser.com and leave a review for this episode or for the Podcast Junkies show. Have a great week.